that song makes you want to praise God, say amen. amen. Tremendous, tremendous. Take your Bibles, turn with me tonight to the book of Luke chapter 6. Book of Luke chapter 6. Now when you're in Luke chapter 6, you're not really that far into the ministry of Jesus. You go back to chapter 4, you see the temptation the, 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 where the devil tempted Jesus three times, and then you start to, into Jesus' earthly ministry. And then almost immediately, you start to see Jesus rubbing people the wrong way. And when I say the people, I'm referring to the religious crowd. Oftentimes, you'll see Pharisees, scribes, uh, lawyers, you know, whatever, but basically the religious establishment. As soon as Jesus started speaking publicly, started talking about the real deep truths of God, who God is, who, God, or who He was, being Jesus incarnate in the flesh, He lost the religious establishment almost right off the bat. This continues on through chapter 5. By the time you get to chapter 6, we start off with two different events that happen, verses 1 through 5 and then verses 6 through 10. Both of these, they're separate events. They both happen on the Sabbath day, but they're different Sabbath days. The first one in verses 1 through 5, the religious crowd, uh, they, they chastise Jesus because his disciples are going through and picking corn on the Sabbath day. And then in verses 6 through 10, the religious crowd gets on Jesus for, oh my goodness, hold your breath, doing something good and healing somebody on the Sabbath day. You get to verse 11, and here's the type of emotion that is, is being generated. Verse 11 says, and they, going back to uh, verse 7, the scribes and the Pharisees, says, and they were filled with madness and communed one with another what they might do to Jesus. In and of itself, quite frankly, every time I read through this chapter and I'm reading this verse, it just boggles my mind that you see someone who is doing such great things, someone who the power of God clearly is flowing through, and we're going to try to figure out what we're going to do to Jesus. This situation gets to the point, verse 12, we're going to read uh, verses 12 through the first part of verse 20, and then we'll get to the rest of this as we go along. It says, that after, And it came to pass in those days that he went out into a mountain to pray, and continued all night in prayer to God. When it was day, he called unto him his disciples, and of them he chose twelve, whom also he named apostles. Simon, whom he also named Peter, and Andrew his brother, James and John, Philip and Bartholomew, Matthew and Thomas, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon called Zelotes and Judas, the brother of James, and Judas Iscariot, which also was the traitor. And he came down with them and stood in the plain. And the company of his disciples and a great multitude of people out of all Judea and Jerusalem and from the seacoast of Tyre and Zidon, which came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. And they that were vexed with unclean spirits, and they were healed. And the whole multitude sought to touch him. For there went virtue out of him and healed them all. Now, as we set the scene, before we get into anything that Jesus actually preaches about or says, understand that right now you're dealing with three distinct groups of people. 
First of all, when Jesus is finished with his all night praying to God, he calls the disciples unto him. Very clearly in verse 13, you're not just talking about 12 disciples. I know it's very easy sometimes. I find myself doing it. I'm reading through the Gospels. Usually I come to the word disciples. What do we usually all think about? The 12. We don't know exactly how many disciples are here. You go to Luke chapter 10, a couple different verses. It references Jesus sending out 70 disciples to do his work. I don't know if this is more than 70, less than 70. All I know is it's more than 12. He takes this particular crowd and then he picks out the second distinct group. He selects the 12 that we are most familiar with, the apostles. By the time he then comes down off the mountain, you've got the disciples, you've got the 12 selected apostles. Then he's joined by the seven, in verse 17, the great multitudes are coming out because already the fame of Jesus is spreading very quick. This guy is doing stuff that we just cannot believe he's doing. He is healing people, he's healing lepers, he's, he's doing all this wonderful stuff, and we have something we need him to do. When you get down to verse 19, whole multitudes sought to touch him, for there went virtue out of him and healed them all. Verse 20 starts off by saying, and he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, and then he goes into this sermon. So you've got this humongous crowd of people. Jesus has been demonstrating the grace of God. He's been demonstrating the love of God, the power of God. He's healing people that are coming to him. He's fulfilling their needs. But right now, when it comes to delving into the spiritual truths, he's only focusing on those that are already following him and interested in spiritual truth. We're not going to read through the rest of verse 20 to, to, to verse 45. I'm just going to give you the little summary here. Pretty much everything that's covered in Luke chapter 6 from this point to, to verse 45. Little bits and pieces that uh, Luke records the bits and pieces from different things that you see in the, what we call the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7. He starts off his sermon, we've got a couple of blessed be the poor, blessed be the hungry, etc. He talks about uh, telling the disciples they were going to be persecuted, talks about loving your enemies, blessing them that curse you. Verse 31, what a lot of people refer to as the golden rule. I don't know exactly where they come up with that, that's fine, I don't care what you call it. But he says, and as ye would that men should do to you, do ye also to them likewise, he talks about not judging people. He talks about uh, getting down to verse uh, 43 through 45. We're actually going to read that because that's going to segue me here into verse 46. But he talks about the types of trees and the types of fruit that exist all around us. There's only two types of, of trees. You have a good tree or you have a bad tree. You never have anything in the middle. There's no such thing as a, eh, it's an okay tree. He says in verse 43, For a good tree bringeth not forth corrupt fruit, neither does a corrupt, fruit, a corrupt tree bring forth good fruit. For every tree is known by his own fruit. For of thorns men do gather figs, nor of a bramble bush gather they grapes. A good man out of the good treasure of his heart bringeth forth that which is good. And an evil man... Out of the evil treasure of his heart bringeth forth that which is evil. 
For of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaketh. I'm going to stop there right there. Just, just stop right there right now. And I'm, I'm going to make some comments. And I, I just, I'm going to ask that you kind of hear me out before you react or before you start thinking about this. What you have seen so far, verses 20 through that part there, the end of verse 45. Really, I mean, to be honest, it's really bottom shelf, really simple, yet very important, obviously, doctrine, very good, you know, practical, this is how we should be living, this is what we should be doing, these are the characteristics of someone who's walking with Christ. You know, sweetie, this really reminds me a lot of what we see in modern day church culture today. So many big churches, so many people, you go, you hear your teaching pastor or whatever they call them, get up there and give you the bottom shelf, the good stuff, the rah-rahs, yeah, you guys should be praying and you should love each other and God loves you and you know, then we send you out the door, we'll see you next week. This kind of reminds me of something you would find in, quote, a modern day church. Verse 46, though, we have a very subtle yet substantial change in the tone. Because after Jesus goes through all of this, what we call the, the, the real basics, the nuts and bolts, if you want to look at it that way, virtually out of the blue, he gives us verse 46. He says, And why call ye me Lord, Lord, and do not the things which I say? You know, I'm, I'm preparing for this, I'm reading this, I'm thinking about these verses, and I can't help it, please forgive me. This example comes to my mind. Lakewood Church, Houston, Texas. Some of you are giggling already, I haven't even got to the punchline. Pastored by a man who maybe some of you have heard of, Joel Osteen. 45,000 people approximately go through that church every single week. Five different services. Believe it or not, they have a Wednesday night service. They have a Saturday service. They have three services on Sunday. And most of us probably have a general familiarity with Joel Osteen. You know pretty much what his messages tend to focus on. It's the real feel-good, uh, not a whole lot of depth. God loves you. God wants you to be successful. You're living your best life now. You know, all this stuff. You've heard the sound bites. You've seen the books. You know exactly what the message is. I'm envisioning this, it'd be kind of akin to Joel Osteen's up there preaching his typical stuff, and then at the very end of the sermon, he then just all of a sudden says, and you people aren't being as obedient to God as you should be. Can you imagine how fast the air would go out of that building? When all of a sudden you're, you're getting this stuff that you're, you know, all this teaching that you can get behind and yeah, Jesus, you're right. And yeah, we should be doing this and that's the way to do it and whatever. And then he punches them in the face spiritually and says, by the way, why do you call me Lord, Lord? And do not the things which I say. You know, Brother Wally, whenever we're preaching through the gospels, we come across a question that Jesus asks you know, very obviously, as Brother Wally says, Jesus is not asking the question because he doesn't know the answer. He knows the heart of man. He knows your heart better than you know your heart. He knows me better than I know myself. And he's not asking the question because he wants an answer from them. This is a rhetorical question. But it's a big question. 
And obviously, the way that he's posing the question, he doesn't just call out, you know, one or two people. I'm going to pick on Peter because we always pick on Peter. He doesn't say, oh, by the way, Peter, why aren't you doing what you're supposed to be doing? Or James, how come you're not really living up to expectations? He's posing this question to however many people that he has focused on that we have identified as his disciples. Which, first of all, tells me that this is a pervasive problem. It's not just one or two people sitting there disobeying and not doing what Christ is expecting them to do. There is a general attitude in some form or fashion where everybody has to address this question. Thinking about this question made me realize a few things. Made me realize that the whole topic of obedience really reveals a lot more than sometimes I think it does. First of all, I think the question itself, and when you talk about obedience, I think it reveals what we actually think Jesus' role in our life is. Uncomfortable time here, audience participation. Raise your hand if you consider Jesus Christ your Lord and Savior. Pretty much everybody, virtually everybody, close enough. By the way, have you ever noticed that people say that Jesus is their Lord and Savior? I don't think I've ever heard anybody say that He's their Savior and Lord. Do you actually realize that that phrase is not just one title? I think we tend to treat it as one thing, one role that Jesus has in our lives. Oh, He's my Lord and Savior. I mean, I can't tell you how many people I've talked to, talk about, you know, ask them about Jesus, who do you think Jesus is? You go on visitation, you knock on a door, you, you ask them, how do you go to heaven? Well, because Jesus is my Lord and Savior. And they almost say it where it rolls together like almost one word. He's my Lord and Savior. Do we actually remember all the time that those are two separate things? First of all, I can tell you right now, come April 1st, 33 years ago, Jesus has been my Savior every single day. Never one question, never one doubt. But when you actually think about the question and you look at the word Lord, and you don't even need a dictionary for this. I went ahead and looked it up anyway, just so you guys, you know, you know, I'm giving you the actual definition. But you all know what a Lord is. Other words the dictionary used, master, ruler. I mean, if, if somebody is your Lord, that means that person's the boss. What that person says goes. The question that he's posing to them is causing them to think about it, trying to make them think about it, so it can reveal within themselves, is Jesus actually my Lord? You have to obey your Lord. You do not have to obey to be saved, by the way. And I know that's a controversial statement. Whoa, whoa, whoa. we're starting to tread on some tricky waters here. But the Bible is very clear on this. Take something, stick in Luke 6, doesn't matter, bulletin finger. Turn over to John chapter 3 real quick. Just to give us a little quick reminder of exactly what it takes to be saved. John chapter 3, very famous chapter. Jesus is talking to Nicodemus. Starting in verse 14, Jesus says, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, 
that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. And here's actually, you know, typically we read those and we focus on 316. Here's the real verse of focus as it relates to my message tonight. Verse 18. He that believeth on him is not condemned. But he that believeth not is condemned already, because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Now turn over to Romans 10. I'll give you two more verses that you could probably recite off the top of your head. Very famous verses, and yet very uh, truthful, very impactful very clear reminder of exactly what salvation is all about. Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10, Apostle Paul writing, that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. You notice that neither one of those verses, the, the one section of verses out of John 3, right out of Jesus' mouth. The other verses from the hands of the Apostle Paul, that's good enough for me. I'll take it as authoritative. God's given it to us as his word. That's good enough for me. And you notice that neither of those sections of passages, those verses, mention anything about obedience. It mentions and refers to what you believe and trust in. So April 1st, 1990, I believed that I was a sinner that needed to be forgiven. And I believed that the only way I could be forgiven was by accepting the fact Jesus died on the cross, gave himself as the ultimate sacrifice, and rose from the dead, and that all of that paid for my sin. So ever since that day, he has been my Savior. But I'm going to make a startling confession to you, and if this makes you go up to pastor afterwards and say, I don't ever want to hear him behind the pulpit again, that's up to you. He has not always been my Lord. Because, I mean, I hate to say it, I have spent much, much more time of my Christian walk disobedient to Christ than I would probably ever actually like to know. And I know probably someday, you know, God, I'm going to get there in heaven. God's probably going to reveal those types of things to me. I'm not looking forward to that. But if the definition of being the Lord is someone that you have to obey and do exactly what, it, you can go back to Luke 6 if you haven't already. Doing everything that the Lord tells you to do, hey, I'm guilty, I haven't done it. I go through periods of time, days, weeks, months, who knows, where I'm not in complete obedience to Christ, and I know it, and He's not my Lord. Amen. I'm not proud to admit that, but I'm being truthful with you. Jesus, in asking this question, is trying to get them to be truthful with themselves. Why are you calling me Lord, Lord, when you're not treating me that way? You're revealing the position and the role that Jesus actually has in your life at that time. Now the second thing that obedience reveals as we continue on, verses 47 through 49, it also reveals exactly how spiritually wise we really are. 
You know, I will again, because I'm the one up here and I'm doing all the confessing and you guys are just sitting back there listening and thinking whatever you're thinking. I'm not nearly as spiritually wise as I think I am sometimes. You know, I'm a human being. I have an ego. I try to suppress that ego. I pray to God to take the ego, but I have an ego. And there are times when, you know what, I really think I got my stuff together and I don't have anything. Well, here's how obedience ties into that. Verse 47, he continues on after he asks the question, Whosoever cometh to me and heareth my sayings and doeth them, I will show you to whom he is like. He is like a man which built a house and dig deep and laid the foundation on a rock. And when the flood arose, the stream beat vehemently upon that house and could not shake it, for it was founded upon a rock. But he that heareth and doeth not is like a man that without a foundation built a house upon the earth, against which the stream did beat uh, vehemently, and immediately it fell, and the ruin of that house was great. We usually hear those verses in the context of the first guy being the wise person, the second guy not being so wise. But really, this is all based on how strong your faith is, and obedience is the starting key. Obedience to the Word of God is the foundation that's talked about here. And if you want the proof of that, let's go back and look at verse 47 very carefully. Because to be the first man, you have to meet all three conditions that are given in verse 47. In my other life, I have to read statutes, and some things say you uh, are guilty of committing this crime if you've done this and this and this. You have to have done all three or you're not guilty of that crime. If you've done two out of the three, you're not guilty. Now, on the other hand, you can have a law that says if you have done this or this or this, you're guilty of a crime, and all you have to do is one of the three and you're done. This is one of those cases where in order for you to actually have spiritual wisdom in your Christian walk, you have to meet all three of these conditions. Verse 47 starts off by saying, whosoever cometh to me. That's probably the easy one. You cannot have spiritual wisdom if you do not know Christ as your Savior. I think we can all agree on that. The second part, and heareth my sayings. You know, I'm going to say something, you may disagree with this, and I'm not going to argue it's a different topic for a different sermon exactly how the Holy Spirit convicts and works in this regard. I do believe that there are people that genuinely and truly accept the salvation of Christ who refuse to come to church. Because once again, as I said earlier, salvation has nothing to do with any kind of work. Ephesians chapter 2 has nothing to do with your obedience. I'm not saying you don't come to church. I'm just saying that the foundational thing to be saved is that you have that belief, that faith, and that trust. Amen. But I will tell you that if you don't come to church, if you don't read your Bible, if you don't have some form of, of the Word of God coming into your heart, you cannot be a spiritually wise person. Because that's exactly the second point there. Heareth my sayings. Now, obviously, Jesus is, is, is there in person. He's talking to a crowd in person. He's referring to the immediate sayings that he's going to be uh, uh, talking about throughout the course of his ministry. 
But now we have the entire Word of God at our disposal. You can be a saved person, but if you're one of those that doesn't want to come to church because it's full of hypocrites, don't expect to be very wise, spiritually speaking. Which, by the way, have you ever noticed, and I've always found this kind of curious, you ever notice how church is the only thing that we'll stay out of because of hypocrites? Yeah, and Brother Joe kind of touched upon this. He touched upon hypocrisy and, and was talking about people that won't come to church because of the hypocrites uh, Sunday night. The world that I work in is full of hypocrites. I don't stay home from work. I do not know one season ticket holder to a Bengals game who refuses to go to Bengals games because it's full of fair-weathered uh, fans who are only on the bandwagon when they're doing good, i.e. hypocrites. I don't stay out of Walmart because it's full of hypocrites. Yeah, we'll stay out of church because of hypocrites. Obviously, it's a very convenient excuse. But you cannot find spiritual wisdom unless you actually expose yourself to biblical teaching in your church setting, preaching, you know, do it in person in church. When you're not here in church, listen to some good sermons online. Uh, one of my favorites, and I think we got Brother Roulette coming in the fall for revival. I love listening to his uh, and watching his sermons when I'm at the gym. Whether he's preaching in Michigan or a lot of times I'll see videos, he's out at the Lancaster Baptist, got one of his CDs in my car. Expose yourself to that as much as you can. Hear his sayings as much as possible. When I say his, I mean Jesus, not Brother Roulette's or anybody else's. And most importantly, study the Bible and read it for yourself. You and I have the unique ability to take a physical letter written to us by our Creator, our God, hopefully our Lord, definitely our Savior. This is also a form of hearing His sayings. And if you're going to be one of those, and I actually know a person like this, I know a person, they're in their 50s, and you know, actually led them to Christ, professed faith, etc. Will not step foot in a church. I have struggled in my humanity as to whether or not that person really is saved or not, and that's not my call. That's between God and them, so I don't know. That's why I said that's a different topic for a different sermon. Yes, I know the Holy Spirit should be convicting us to do the right thing. If you're not really saved, you're not feeling that conviction, and I'm not getting into any of that tonight. All I'm saying is that if you do not expose yourself to what God wants to tell you, don't pretend, don't even think that you have access to a spiritual wisdom. But even that's not enough. Because you have another and here. You come to Him, you get saved. You hear His sayings by coming to church, going to Sunday school, hearing messages, reading your Bible, studying, so forth, etc., and doeth them. Two out of three isn't going to cut it. And I hate to say if there are too many Christians in modern day American Christian culture that think two out of three is okay enough. Matter of fact, when you get to verse 49 and we're talking about the person that we would consider to be spiritually unwise, it specifically starts out by saying, but he that heareth and doeth not. So it's not just addressing the person who might be saved and you know, doesn't hear. This person is saved, hears the instructions of God, but ignores it, doesn't follow it, disobeys it, whatever word you want to use. That person is a foolish person. 
That's what our obedience to Christ reveals. The next thing that it reveals is our love for God. Uh, turn over to John chapter 14. Which, by the way, John chapter 14, I'll tell you right now, it is one of, if not the, favorite chapters of mine in the entire Bible. When I find myself struggling, faith is off a little bit, a little anxiety, kind of worrying about what's going to happen. I love to jump into verse 1. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. You get down there to uh, uh, verse um, you know, 26, talks about uh, Jesus' promise that the Comforter, the Holy Ghost, was going to come. Verse 27, peace I leave with you, my peace I give unto you. Not as the world giveth, give I unto you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. I mean, those are great verses to, to, to pick yourself up when you're struggling. But don't think for a second that chapter 14 is, once again, all, you know, modern-day church, feel-good pep talk, here you go, nice, you know, out your good luck. Because right in the middle of this, Jesus is once again going to punch you in the nose spiritually and lay some heavy truth on you. Verse 15, look what Jesus says here. If you love me, keep my commandments. Then he goes a little further even beyond that, verses 23 and 24. Verse 22, Judas said unto him, not Iscariot, Lord, how is it that thou wilt manifest thyself unto us and not unto the world? Jesus answered and said unto him, if a man love me, he will keep my words. And my father will love him, and we will come unto him and make our abode with him. He that loveth me not, keepeth not my sayings. And the word which ye hear is not mine, but the Father's which sent me. You know, a few moments ago, I asked you guys a question. Raise your hand. If Jesus is your Lord and Savior, everybody raise your hand. I'm not going to do it, but I'm going to dare take a guess. If I had asked the same question, ask you to raise your hand. If you love God, raise your hand. I cannot imagine one hand in this room would not have went up. If for the simple reason, if you even, if you, for whatever reason, didn't love God, I'm not going to let anybody else know it. I'm going to raise my hand. Well, here's the reality. If you're not obeying God, you're not demonstrating a love towards Him. Amen. And just like Jesus said there at the very end of that, verse 24, He said, And the word which you hear is not mine, but the Father's which sent me. These aren't my words. This is the words of the God that wrote this. This is a very controversial and hard thing to accept. Because again, obedience is not tied to salvation. But your level of obedience to God and to His Word and to His wishes and to His will, it reveals exactly how much you do truly love God. Amen. You know, you can come into this church building on a Sunday, Sunday night, Wednesday night. You can walk back and forth, talk to each other. You can talk about how much you love God to your blue in the face. God knows how much you love Him. And your amount of love that you have is manifested in exactly how much you treasure His Word. Do you treasure it enough that you're going to obey it? And again, I'm going to fall back here to verse 24. Not me saying it. It's the Father's. I know that's harsh. And I know that's harsh because I know what that means for me. I would love to be able to stand up here and say, 
every single second, every single minute, every single hour of every single day of my life. I love God. But you know what? If that is genuinely true, sometimes I have a weird way of showing it. You wouldn't know it by sometimes, you know, the relationship that God and I have because I'm not walking in the path with Him like I should. As they always say, if you're not walking with God the way you should, it's never God's fault. We're walking along the path, and I look over, and God's not there anymore. Well, guess what? It wasn't Him that moved. It was you. Whatever little phrase you want to use to demonstrate the point. You genuinely love God. If you genuinely want to love God, you make the commitment to be more obedient to God. Because not only is that the expectation in verse 15, that is the commandment there in verse 23. That is the test. The final thing that we're going to see that obedience reveals, and this also comes from John, except this time it's in the book of 1 John, his first general epistle. Turn over there with me to chapter 2, if you would. Notice, by the way, that these questions and these revelations don't get any easier. Am I the only one that gets less and less comfortable or maybe more and more uncomfortable as I'm going through this? 1 John chapter 2, verses 3 through 5. And hereby we do know that we know Him if we keep His commandments. He that saith, I know Him, and keepeth not His commandments... Ooh, and this is where it gets really stiff, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoso keepeth his word in him, verily is the love of God perfected. Hereby know we that we are in him. And I just want to make very, very clear here, because these three verses can be, have been, will be, and are used so many times to try to justify two really dangerous doctrines. First of all, there are people that take those verses and try to argue with you, see, you have to work and earn your salvation. Because the verses say, if I don't keep his commandments, then I don't know him, he doesn't know me. Always remember one of the first rules of biblical interpretation, Scripture has to be consistent with other Scripture. If Ephesians chapter 2 tells us that our salvation is by grace and faith, not by works, lest we boast, then your theory that these verses say that you have to work to get salvation cannot be possible. So beware of that. The second dangerous doctrine, almost as dangerous, maybe as dangerous, possibly more dangerous, I don't know, than the first one, there are people who use these verses to prove that you can lose your salvation. We all know what the Bible says, I hope. We are sealed by the Holy Spirit into the day of redemption. No man can pluck us out of the Father's hand. In other words, uh, you know, uh, if no man can pluck me out of the Father's hand, I think that includes me, myself. If I'm not good enough to get to heaven by my works, I don't figure I'm bad enough to get kicked out of heaven because I'm a bad guy. Biblical principle is very clear that, and you know, and we get criticized for this a lot as Baptists, Yes, once you are truly, genuinely saved, you are genuinely saved forever. Until the day that God comes and redeems what He has given the earnest of the Holy Spirit to. So beware, don't ever let anybody use these verses to try to prove either of those doctrines to you. 
I've told you what they don't mean. What do they mean? Your obedience reveals the level of intimacy that you have in your relationship with God. You know, Heather and I have been married for over 27 years. Unless or until she kills me, or, you know, which is more likely than the second option, getting a divorce, it's more likely she kills me. We're going to be married regardless of the state of our relationship at that given time. Sometimes the relationship is great. Sometimes the relationship needs some work. These verses are focusing on how to keep your relationship with God great. You want to walk with a very close and very intimate relationship with God? Be obedient. You will know the closeness that He wants to have with you only after you have submitted yourself to His will, submitted yourself to His Lordship, and decided to walk in a relationship where you know Him intimately. That's what these verses are talking about. They have nothing to do with your salvation, either getting it or losing it. Now, these verses do have a particular application. You know a lot of folks who, uh, and this is one of those things I leave to God. This isn't my issue. You get into trouble sometimes when you deal with people who claim to know Christ. They claim to be saved. They tell you, oh yeah, I believe Jesus' blood, and, you know, and however they might explain it. And then they go off, and what's the old saying? They live like the devil. I don't know if that person is saved or not. I know the good tree produces good fruit. I know the bad tree produces bad fruit. I don't know the heart of anybody else but my own. All I know is this, when you look at this, if you're living a life where you're, you're not keeping His commandments, but you're saying that you're good with God, you're a liar. If you say that you and God are tight and our relationship is great and I'm walking with God and I know you're out there and drinking up and shooting up and smoking up and doing what, you know, running around on your spouse and doing all these things, you know, that you're not supposed to be doing, of course, it doesn't even have to be that extreme. There are other ways of disobeying God that doesn't involve the biggies. But if you tell me that you and God are really, really tight and you're living a life that's showing me otherwise, you're lying. I don't know if you're lying to me. I don't know if you're lying to yourself, but you're lying. Because obedience reveals exactly how close you really are with God. Now, I'm going to tell you the hardest part of all this as I wrap this up. Going back to Luke chapter 6, we're going through all these verses. We're talking about all these things he's talking about and teaching. Then all of a sudden, out of the blue, he hits them with, you guys aren't being obedient to me causing them, hopefully, to ask themselves some very hard questions. I realize every single day I should be asking myself these questions. What is my obedience revealing about the role that I'm letting Jesus have in my life? Is He just my Savior, or am I actually yielding and letting Him be my Lord? It's revealing to me how wise I actually am, or it should be revealing to me how wise I am in Christ. Am I actually as wise as I think I am? Well, no, you know what? You're not because you're not doing what He's telling you to do. Do I really love God like I should? Am I really as close to God as I should be? And I'm going to be truthful with you. Probably the main reason I don't ask myself those questions every day 
I don't really want to know the answer. But if you want to leave here tonight and you really want that close, intimate relationship with God, you need to start asking the hard questions. Because Jesus had no problem asking the hard questions. Brother Wally.